Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to Pushing the Limits. This is Lisa Tarmati again. And once again, I have the fantastic Dr. Mansour Mohammed, all the way from Canada, who has sacrificed, and I mean sacrificed, some time to, to give you guys uh, the, the rundown on what uh, the coronavirus is all about from a scientist's point of, point of view, from an immunologist's point of view. Dr. Mansour is not only a leading functional genomic specialist, and you heard him on the show just last week, but he is also a immunologist. So welcome to the show again, Dr. Mansour. It's, uh, I'm so pleased to see you. I just wish well, thank you so much for having me circumstances back. This. Um, no, it's fantastic. So Dr. Mansour, you've written a couple of articles that I've also had up on my blog and sharing it with my, my audience. Um, it, it certainly gave me pause um, and it was very much the facts and not the, the hype, uh, but still very, very concerning. Um, can you uh, give us a rundown on the history of the coronavirus for a start and you know, how do we well, get I think um, not to trivialize or make light of a serious situation, but to start off at a point that highlights something, and that is the more of these uh, podcasts and video casts that I'm doing in the coming weeks, I'm pretty much self isolated, not pretty much I am, and I don't have access to a barber anymore. So as these videos go on, I'm looking gruffer and you know, sort of scrubbier as each video goes on. So <laughs> So, so, so to the, right, to the point great. of starting, so. that's a good place to start that, you know, we are taking this seriously, yeah. uh, but to make something of, you know, to, to lighten the mood um, for the audience members, yep, this is what Dr. Mansour looks like when he doesn't have access to a barber for the, you know, for the coming time. <laughs> but, um, so... Coronaviruses. The first thing I think as a community we've got to understand is we've been exposed. So the SARS-CoV-2, which causes which causes the COVID-19, this this pandemic. So this pandemic is caused by a virus, not by a bacteria, by a virus. Number one. Number two, the pandemic, the disease, the infection, to the degree that someone gets it, it's called the COVID-19. Uh, pandemic, the COVID-19 disease, as, as it might be, infection, and it's caused by the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus. Now, it's not by chance that the, uh, the agencies that had to come up with a name for this, they used that SARS as a prefix to illustrate that this virus comes from the same species of the virus that we dealt with almost two decades ago, i.e. SARS, acute respiratory syndrome, which of course, at the end of the day, that will be likely the clinical concern for anyone who gets a clinically concerning infection. It typically is manifesting itself as acute respiratory syndrome, um, i.e. difficulty breathing up to and including needing to be hospitalized. We'll talk a little bit about that a bit later on. But the point of this then is this, this is a virus. It's a virus that we've seen, the, the, the family of this virus, the coronaviruses. Humans have been interacting and have had to deal with infections for coronaviruses for several decades now. So to the population out there listening to this, know that this is not some sort of, you know, 
came out of the blue monster virus that no, ever, no one ever knew about. No, not at all. It's, it's the same family of viruses that do tend to crop up. They tend to come from animals, specific animals that tend to, you know, they act as vectors, they act as carriers. And ever so often, these viruses that were evolved to live or to reproduce in animals, ever so often, as they mutate, they develop the ability to leave an animal host and come to a human host. Okay, so this, this is what we're dealing with. We're also dealing with this, this virus, this thing that we've seen before. It's not actually that much more virulent. In other words, the not to sound too cold, but the mortality rate of this virus, the number of people that will ultimately die from this virus is actually... It is more than the common flu. The common flu tends to have a mortality rate of about 1%, give or take, depending on the, ethnicity, the, 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 the country's health factors and so on and so forth. SARS, for example, that virus that we dealt with a couple of decades ago, had a mortality rate closer to 10%. Uh, MERS, same family, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, had a mortality rate that was even higher than that. The current virus has what we, based on the current epidemiologic studies and the data, which is still young, we're still collecting data, it looks like the mortality rate is about 3 to 4%. So it's not something to scoff at, but in the big picture, it's not something that human beings haven't had to deal with in the past. Okay, now, on the note of that mortality rate, so this virus that we can be infected by, We'll talk about some of the factors of infection that for the most part and for many individuals, it, the symptomology, what they're going to deal with is going to be nothing more than the common flu for the vast majority of individuals. But for that smaller percent of individuals, it can and it will develop into something more serious. We've got to understand this three to 4% though, and percentages are averages. Okay. So we take 100 people, we take a 1,000 people that we knew that were infected, and then we follow the course of their disease. How many people didn't even know? They didn't even know they were infected. They went about life, and they will never know that they were infected because it just never got to the point where it was serious. And by the way, wow. a large percentage of people will fall into that category, which is what is unique about this virus. And it creates a dichotomy. On the one hand, the virus for so many people the symptoms are so mild so as to, for the person not even know they've got the virus or think that it's just another just passing flu. And on the other hand, it can and will kill a small percent of individuals. This duality is what makes this virus so concerning in reality. Because what is happening is many, many people are asymptomatic. They're traveling. And of course, until and unless the countries, countries are now starting to take this seriously, the spread rate, and this is what is concerning, the spread rate of this virus is higher than previous strains. So I'm going to start divvying up these points and we'll address each one of them with a little bit more care. Coming back to it though, so we've got this virus, we've got this percent. I need individuals to understand that when we talk about percentages, they're averages. So the mortality rate on average is 3 to 4%. But when we isolate the at-risk group, mm -hmm. and who are the at-risk group? Individuals that are elder, okay? So we say 65, 70 years old yeah. and above. 
That's that. There's no hard line there, but basically, those are the folks that we're seeing that can be at significantly greater risk. Individuals that are there does seem to be Lisa a male preponderance, and there are some there's some reasons for that. We're still sorting yes. through the data without getting into that which we know, without getting into that which we're uncertain of. And we have to be so careful in these times to only represent what we know. Okay, so it is not absolutely clear when the data is all looked at whether we will see a greater number of males versus females. Currently, it seems that way. And currently, there does seem to be some indicators as to why that might be the case. Okay, regardless, 65, 70 and older, Individuals with existing all all form all comorbidity cardiovascular disease, so hypertension, bona fide beyond hypertension, bona fide cardiovascular disease. Individuals who've had strokes before, individuals who've had cardiovascular events before. Okay. Second to that risk factor seems to be. Uh, diabetic individuals, and again, there's a reason why these things are clustering as such. So if we were to put the highest based on the thin data we have, we would say men above the age of 70 who are hypertensive or who've had cardiovascular events in their life are at the highest risk. Then we would say like-aged men who may be diabetic. Then we would say like-aged women in either of the categories. And then we fall into a broader category that seems to transcend age, so other than above 65, 70, and that is anyone who has been at greater risk, and of course this now expands the population, for asthma, bronchitis, people that may have had pneumonia in the past and they find themselves more susceptible to it, i.e. these are individuals that, you know, from the basis of their physiology, they're at greater risk of what? hyper-inflammatory responses in the respiratory tract. And that's a... So, so no, that's independent of the ACE2 gene. So independent of the ACE2 gene, if, and this is age, uh, this is not age limited, independent of age, independent of the ACE2 gene. And very quickly for the audience, the ACE2 gene is the gene that makes a enzyme receptor on the surface of your cells. And this receptor has been found to be the doorway, the thing, the door through which the SARS-CoV-2 virus enters the human cell. And it's always important for virologists, epidemiologists to know how the virus is getting into the human cell. Keep in mind that viruses, unlike most microorganisms or other living organisms, Viruses cannot exist independent of a host. So a virus needs to enter a cell, an animal cell or a human cell, in order to survive. And what do they do? And, and, and I, I made reference to this to be, you know, if you actually looked at what happens when a virus enters a cell, it's something out of an alien movie. You know, it, literally the virus co-ops, it, 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 it sabotages the, the human cell, it hijacks all of the machinery of the human cell and directs it towards reproducing that virus. And then when the virus has basically usurped and has basically used up all of the resources of the human cell, 
it releases itself from the human cell and now you have one human cell bringing forth from it many, many copies of that virus, okay? So the virulence of a virus, just, wow. just how dangerous it can be, are in parts. How easily can it enter the human body? You know, is it something that you've got to go, you know, lick the floor before you get infected? Is it something that you just have to breathe it from, a, you know, from meters away? So, so that's the first component. The second component is after it enters the human body, which cells of the human body is the virus getting in? See, different viruses can enter and infect different cells. And depending on the organ system of the body, you might imagine that a virus that is able to get across the blood-brain barrier and affect the brain, the neural cells, or virus that can get into you know, the liver or virus, there are certain organs that, depending on if those cells were being ruptured and being taken over, you can imagine correctly that the impact, the health impact on the human being is going to be more severe than other organs. Now, for the most part, the coronaviruses, when they infect the human being and they get in, they're entering into cells involved in the pulmonary cardiovascular system. They're basically infecting the lining of the lung and other cells, mind you. Okay? Now, so the other component that makes it, when we look at how dangerous a virus is, we want to see how easily can it be contracted, when it gets into the body, which cells are, it going, are they going into, how quickly are they usurping? How quickly are they using up the resources of the cell? Okay. Compared to how quickly can the immune system of the body attack and get rid of the virus, right? So there's a game being played here, a war that is being waged. The virus gets into our cells, using up our cells to multiply. At the same time, our immune system is trying to respond and get rid of those microorganisms from the body, okay? And for the vast majority of people that come in contact with coronaviruses, including the SARS-CoV-2, our immune system is beautifully equipped to stop it from going beyond that which is tolerable, okay? No. So looking after in our any infection, system, it will be beneficial. Will be beneficial. And this is something that we might touch upon, uh, Lisa, so many scientists, so many health professionals, we are looking at the immediacy, as we should be, the acute infection. But what we're not considering is this. Because of the ramifications of this infection, what do we see happening? People are having to stay indoors. People are stocking up in food. They're, they're, they're afraid to go out and shop. So we're stocking up on non-perishables, which happen to be processed foods, laden with sugar, laden with salts. We're not getting the type of activity that keeps us healthy, that is sleep cycles are disrupted. Our stress levels are up. When we're stressed out because we've got to go and we've got to line up for two hours in order to get, because of, frankly, hysterical buying patterns that should not be in our communities. We are doing a disservice to ourselves, to our loved ones, to the at-risk population by that uncalled for hoarding and rushing out and buying. Why? You're creating stressful environments. These stressful environments elevate your cortisol levels. Yep. That elevated cortisol suppresses the immune system. Okay? then we're going, what are we buying? Are we buying fresh fruits and vegetables? And, 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 and No, we're buying canned foods. We're buying pasta. We're buying processed foods because those are the non-perishables. And then we're 
thinking of a journey where for the next four months or however long we're cooped up, think of what this is going to do to not just the immediacy effect on health of the infection, but the longitudinal effect of people wow. not exercising for months and end, being cooped up, eating horrible foods, stress levels are up. Right. Yeah. And I mean, this is one of like, um, in our company, obviously we're a health and fitness company and we, we, we look at all the health sort of sides. We're pivoting as you are with your company into yes. providing yes. online training yes. programs, online, you know, live yes. classes to people in their living room and, and making them think about lowering their stress levels, getting into meditation and deep breathing and all those things that are going to be great for I your cannot immune stress immune enough from a scientific perspective, from a medical perspective, and unfortunately, our medical communities, because we're swamped and having to deal with the immediacy of the acute care, few people are speaking about the radically important component that you're dealing with, the service that you're providing, the, the lesions of individuals for whom they don't have to be worried, even if they were infected, about it being an overly dangerous infection it will be they'll have a flu and they'll be down for the count for a few days but what they're not looking at is the transient and yes it may be transient but the the, the impact on our cardiovascular system the longitudinal impact on our immune system the impact on our mood mental behavior well-being right i just read an article just before coming onto this uh, onto this podcast that in one, of the, in one of the provinces that here in Canada, their, 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 their um, uh, assault, uh, um, um, domestic abuse, sorry. So their, their domestic abuse hotlines are ringing off the clock now because what you're getting is this ripple effect. Now you're wow. getting people having to be locked up in their homes, exacerbating latent behavioral you know, misgivings and tendencies. These repercussions, Lisa, are going to have greater societal impacts than the repercussion of the virus. Okay. I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, I, I know with myself, like, you know, uh, we've we, um, got some financial impacts from this with our business, uh, as are, you know, most people at this time, and that is creating stress between human, my human, and human, I, yeah. you know, and this is just, in, you know, not too much information, but just where people um, and, and what what I've been trying to put in, in in my social media and in my videos and things is the importance of Absolutely. having honest, calm discussions with each other and being positive about um, finding the opportunities because every horrible you know cloud that comes upon us also brings benefits and it's like it's, okay what, what what is the benefit of this instead of just looking at the threat and changing it into this is a challenge this is an interesting time we're living uh we have a chance to pivot we have a chance to um have more time with our loved ones to reflect on our direction of our lives and where this world is going and there will be benefits and not to just go into a panic absolutely. state and it's very easy to do when you are losing your income and when you are stressed about your elderly loved ones or... And, or and you know, it's, it's, things, it's, it's you know, really God forbid and, and horrible in me to say that I can sit and be a pundit when, you know, if I'm not entirely concerned about, about next month's, you know, rental income or, or, or paying the bills and that there are individuals for whom because yeah. their store was closed or because their day job was affected and they can't. So please, to the audience out there, I cannot, it would be 
utter hypocrisy of me to say that I can understand the stresses that that will bring. But what I can say is this, that regardless of what you're facing, know that those stressors are in and of themselves uh, further exacerbating your own health, number one. Number two, to, 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 to do have in the the sooner and the greater portion of the society that takes up a positive outlook of this is the sooner that the society is going to get back to the operationality that we need to get back to. And of course, that, that operationality, we will find that there are different things. Ingenuity often sprouts from times of hardship. And again, I'm not trying to pundicize from a lofty position. I know that there are people out there, I can't imagine, I can, I can only empathize the, the, the struggles some individuals are facing. But, you know, the, the, the incredible thing of the human condition is that when we band together, when we, when we show the care that is needed and, the, and we step out of ourselves, that we suppress that narcissism and we watch out for the greater community, we will find that there will be things when this is over, we will have uh, inventions, we will have things, we'll have a way of going about business that is now more resilient to the next thing that we will face. And we will always face these things as human beings. So coming back to, I, I really want to emphasize that, yes, we must look out at the virulence level, the virus and the, the direct causational things we need to look at, but it is so important, and Lisa, what you're doing, and, and in fact, where your business can grow with this, this is not the point of this podcast, is to say people, more and more individuals, the individuals that are reading books, because just what are you going to do? You're home, you're reading, educating yourself, picking something that you say, you know what, I now have some time. Let me use that time and, and, and let me pursue something that I otherwise didn't have because I was stuck in traffic two hours every day going back and forth. So engender that and then nothing can be better purpose, nothing can be better positioned than engendering and helping individuals. Here's something that's going to happen, Lisa. When this event has passed, a much greater percentage of our society will recognize I need to take my, my health seriously. I need to, you know, I need to, I need yes. to recognize that, you know what, if I were entirely dependent on my governmental institution that are doing amazing jobs, on my medical institutions to take care of me, you know, I'm putting myself at some risk, okay? So, so let me take the steps to improve my well-being. So here's the point. Absolutely, regardless of whether it's coronaviruses, SARS-CoV-2 specifically, if we are healthier as human beings, just in all of the definitions of healthier, we are better equipped to deal with infections. And that's a very generic statement, but it's a very accurate statement. So now let's get into a little bit of more of the specifics and we can tie them back. We, we got to the point that when the virus, this particular yes, SARS-CoV-2 enters the body, here is the two things that are making this virus, three things that are making this virus a bit more, despite the lower rates of mortality, a bit more concerning. Before we get to those three things, let me finish the point on the percentages. As much as the average mortality percentage is about 3 to 4%, that number significantly rises when we look at the at-risk population. It's closer to 8 to 10% of people 
in the at-risk elder population as we defined. And so, of course, at that point, now we are getting to a number that is concerning. Our loved ones who, yes, they're 70, but that, you know, they've got beautiful long lives ahead of them, but certain factors can make them quite at risk for this virus. Now, other than what we've mentioned in terms of age, possible sex dimorphism, uh, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obviously, we have to be super careful. The smaller percent of our population that are recipients of organ transplants, and therefore they are immunosuppressive medications, these individuals, their caregivers, their families, we've got to be so concerned about making sure we do not expose this segment of the society. Uh, patients that are on chemotherapies, and therefore, yeah. because of the, you know, the real pounding the chemotherapy does to the human body, cancer patients and patients on chemotherapy should also and need to also be added to that ultra-protective part of the population. Okay, now, let's... Um, the, the, there there has been, and so I would be hypocritical to say that the data is clear to the degree of making a final comment. It appears... Actually, and by God's grace, it appears that the youth are much less affected by the virus, much less affected. Okay, and, and um, what's that timeline? Is it toddlerhood? Are babies back in the risk category? But, but then from two years to 15, we don't have those ages. But what we know is that when we look at the broad epidemiologic data, we're not seeing much comorbidities or mortalities in the the youthful population, with the exception of obviously any children, you know, gosh, that are dealing with cancers or that are dealing with, uh, you know, yeah. individual increased predispositions to asthma, uh, pneumatic pneumonia. Okay. Yeah. If you are that person, regardless of age, what are these symptoms? A person who, when they get the cold or they get a flu, you know, we all tend to have different responses. You know, some of us will get a sore throat, we'll get a stiffly nose, we'll get a headache, we'll get maybe some achy joints, and that's it. And then there's some individuals, the first thing that happens is, you know, they'll say, it's my lungs. I, I, I get that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at risk for the upper respiratory bron bronchial infections, yeah. and I get the lung part, the lung, okay? <laughs> if you fall into that category, what it yeah. means is, individually, physiologically and actually very often genetically, the lining of your, the alveoli, the little sacs, the little air sacs of your lung, the lining is at risk for what we'd call a hyper-inflammatory reaction, okay? And so, and, and this, is where, this is where we have to be a bit more careful, okay? So, so if you know you fall into that category, then anything that causes inflammation of the lining, the luminal lining, which could be, for example, these individuals would have known never be the person locked in a closed bathroom using harsh chemicals. That alone can bring on a really bad episode of shortness of breath and something worse than that. In the case of the virus, well, of course, this particular virus, coming back to where we started, these viruses are entering these cells because this ACE2 gene happens to be expressed 
the doorways, the cells with the doorways through which this virus enters happens to be expressed in the lower respiratory tract and it happens to be expressed in different parts of the cardiovascular system, mm -hmm. which is why it's unsurprising that the deleterious mm -hmm. symptoms of the virus are exactly in those parts of the body. Okay? Now, let's come back to the virus we said. There are three things that are, that are making these, this virus and this pandemic Dangerous, not because of what you'd think it to be, not because it's killing high percentages of individuals, but for the following reason. Number one, ironically, this virus is dangerous because when it does enter the human body, and we said viruses have to enter the human body, co-opt the cells, and then reproduce, it can be so mild. Lisa, every governmental agency knows for a fact, and it's not to create hysteric hysteria, many more people than are being tested positive have the virus, actually have it, okay? But that's okay in some ways. Yeah. They're not, they're not going to have any deleterious health outcome for themselves, but they are going to be the transmitters without the knowing they're the transmitters. So this is where a degree of maturity and a degree of ownership and a degree of responsibility comes in where you've got to be able to say as far as humanly possible, did you travel recently? Do you feel how, you know, and of course using how you feel only goes so far because you may be feeling. So to so really hold yourself yeah. to account have you been traveling? Were you in hot zones? And keep this in mind, because the first of the three things that make this virus so dangerous is actually, it, it is so mild, but mildness does not equal the, the, just because you're mild does not mean you're not emitting the virus, okay? So a person who can be asymptomatic next to a person in bed with a fever, with a sore throat, symptomatic, and they both cough or they both, you know, just happen to expel too much. The virus in the sputum, which of course is the saliva and the mucus that comes out of the mouth or the nose, both individuals can have as many viral particles, the person that is asymptomatic and the person that is symptomatic so long as they're infected. So this is the first thing that makes this virus a bit more dangerous. And it's actually the thing that we're not even talking about, number one. Number two, the second thing that makes this virus quite dangerous is, so when a virus enters a cell, as we said, and it, 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 has, it hijacks that cell for its own, its own reproductive you know, uh, end goal, we, there are these metrics. What these metrics are, we say for every one human cell that the virus enters, how many, how many baby viruses, how many offspring viruses are leaving that, you know, when it's used up the human cell? This is where the SARS-CoV-2 virus is showing a little bit of its dangerous colors. Again, not because it was causing really harmful symptoms, but it is emitting what appears to be, now this is early data, okay? But it's, it's, it's emitting per ruptured, per, per human cell that it, that it hijacks up to a thousand times more viral particles than, pre, than previous coronaviruses. Oh, wow. That means in your sputum, when you're breathing, when you're coughing, there's thousands there you have of times it. more right? Now, again, doesn't mean that it's any more serious a virus, 
but it means that it's transmittability. How many people? This is huge. Okay, and this is why we're seeing that classical exponential doubling. Now, this is what we call the row of a virus, the RO. So, for example, influenza row might be around, let's say, about one or so. The row number is just a number that estimates for every person that has the virus, that has it and that is reproducing it and that is transmitting it, how many people do they stand to infect? the current SARS-CoV-2 seems to be about two to three times as much infectability than the common flu, for example, okay? Wow, so, so for on average, and I know again it's early data, but um, so for one person who has the virus, so they, how many well, of course, that absolute number just has to do with how many people they're coming into contact with. But what the point is, is mono a mono, the person with the common, so here's how you want to look at it. The person who has the common flu versus the person who has the SARS-CoV-2 virus, both of these individuals walk into a supermarket and they're going about their own daily business because they didn't think anything was ulti ultimately wrong the SARS-CoV-2 individual will infect almost three times as many people as the common flu person. Okay, that's the way you want to look at it. And again, these numbers may seem all three times. No, you have to look at what this happens with doubling criteria, exactly. So the other, it's 100%, 100%. Okay, all we need to look at is we need to look at the data that came out of Italy, in one day, one day only, I think it was March 15th, on March 15th alone, the number of infected people jumped by 50%. 50%. In other words, on a documented day, we had wow. 10,000 people infected. And then on the next day, we had 15,000 people that were infected within one day. Okay, when you take these factors again, not fear mongering, keep in mind most of those people infected are not going to have any really, you know, troublesome health concerns. But we're getting there now. The third thing that uh, is concerning about this virus so we spoke about the actually the fact that it's so asymptomatic but doesn't mean that you're not transmitting it that you are transmitting a lot more viral particles than previous coronaviruses or other viruses. The third thing is this, that yes, because of the symptomology, and this is really now putting aside the ripple health effects that you and I addressed a little early in the conversation, on the acute side, on the direct viral concerning side of things, here is the Thing that I highlighted in my first missive. Because when you add up the transmittability of this virus, as per what we've said, it's just a numbers game. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how this plays. In the US, yeah. we have X number of beds per, th per thousand, per thousand yeah. population. Thousand. Okay? So it means that at any given point in time, in any healthcare system, your system in New Zealand, at any given point in time, God forbid, X number of human beings can go to the hospital and receive care. And they'll go to the hospital to receive care from a broken limb because they fell off a bicycle to, you know, needing to give birth to a child to something more serious than that at any given. 
all of these requirements in our hospital system are fixed. There are only X number of ventilators, X number of anesthesiologists, X number of respiratory, and so on and so forth. Now, when you take the rapidity of spread of this particular SARS-CoV-2, and you take the percentage that will ultimately develop concerning enough breathing concerns, concerning enough short breathlessness, not mortality, just enough, you know, and for anyone who's ever had an episode where you can't breathe, it's, it's, yeah. it's a horrible thing, you know, it's, yeah. it's, 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 yeah. it's a very horrible. visceral response. You, right, you, right. you need care. You, you need to be, hey, when we look at the yeah. capacity of the healthcare system, and we look at what these numbers, even if they're non-life-threatening, going into the medical facilities, this is what is breaking the system. Okay? And that's, what's, that's the part that I run. That's the part that every intelligent scientist, researcher, virologist, epidemiologist has said this is the concern. Not the concern of ultimately the severity of the viral infection, ultimately the percentage of the mortalities, but the ripple effect of when more and more people are infected, it just becomes a numbers game that more and more people will show up at hospital facilities requiring care. And of course, at those facilities, we have acute trauma care patients that are there. We have cancer patients that are receiving. We have expecting mothers that are giving birth. We have all of these things that our healthcare system on a daily basis has to handle. And this is exactly what northern italy experienced it's what spain is experiencing right now is what the british government has had to try to say we know this is going to happen so we just have to figure out you know and they some of the press releases from the british government seemed very stark that they just said look we can tell you this is going to happen and we're going to tell you you're going to lose loved ones and now it's a matter of mitigating as much of that as possible okay so uh, the, the the pandemic paradox, the um, mm -hmm. the flattening mm -hmm. of the curve is what we want to achieve. Um, when I, uh, I watched a video from an epidemiologist who was saying, if if it all happens very quickly, we're going to exactly. have a lot more deaths exactly. than if we can have a long tail and and get this. So that, that's that's why the self isolation and the um, the containment measures are so important. The total number yep. of people going to be infected is going to be similar, but it's the, the rate at which they're hitting the hospitals and the, the health facilities. That is the critical, is that's the, the critical break point. And so the only way that we can do this with any degree of, in the, and I'm going to say this carefully, in the best case scenarios, which of course are, often hard to come about. You know, we, if you look at how Singapore has addressed this issue, it was a best case scenario, you know, and now mind you, that has a lot yeah. to do with the history. They were better prepared than most countries. They took the threat of it the moment they heard rumblings from China before it even became a news, you know, they acted. Now, of course, not every country wow. has the control population that they do and the resources that they do. But what I'm trying to say is that we can learn from both what happens when the system is broken, as well as from when the system works. And what we can draw from this is exactly what you pointed out. There has to be a balance. You know, people have been talking, and in fact, I'm so sad that some people have been talking a bit uneducatedly about the concept of herd immunity. 
for herd immunity to work, when you enter into the realm yes. of saying that, okay, let's quote unquote, let herd immunity take its place. The first thing that you've got to know is you've got to be willing to lose a certain percent of your community. Okay. And you've got to make a value proposition of what is that percentage? Yeah. Number one, number two, right? Indeed. Okay. You don't, don't speak about these things flippantly if, they, if it doesn't impact you. Number two, for herd immunity to work, and this is again from a core scientific perspective, there's several parameters that people are so uneducatedly not talking about. One of the parameters of herd immunity is it cannot be a transient population. A herd immunity has to be a closed population. If, if, if you have a population with people actively coming and going, you don't have a herd. What you're doing is you, it's, it's the opposite of a herd immunity, number two. Number three, that you assume there's homogeneity in the response to the infection. But we know there isn't homogeneity in the response. We know that there is a relatively benign response in about 80 to 85% of the population. That's a good thing. But in that 15%, there's the, the individuals for whom there are pre-existing conditions. And then there's that 10%, 5%, 7% that is in that really, really high risk category. Then the fourth component of herd immunity is those individuals are not somehow excluded from the herd. They're embedded in the herd. There are parents that are living in our homes. There are, you know, God forbid, but for the families that have to deal with patients that are dealing with organ transplants and cancer, they're in our midst. So the parameters of herd immunity do not match in the way that people are talking about it. So ideally, what you do want to have that curve flatten, you do want to the 85% of the population that can get the infection so that they are then immune after a period of time, so that they're no longer emitting the viruses. This is what matters. So that we can have 85% of the population walking around, going back into communal businesses and communal discourse, not emitting the viruses, so that sooner rather than later that, that, that curve starts to flatten, flatten, but we do our best for the 15% of the population to shield them. They cannot be included or be thought to have the means safely to address the infection. So we need the infection to die off before they can, again, I'm speaking here in utopia. I'm not saying this is easy. But the sooner we do this is the sooner that we can reintegrate this at-risk part of the population back to normal activity and not be concerned about them then being infected and, of course, not having the means to successfully deal with this infection. So anybody who is in that at-risk category, whether it be through having asthma or being elderly or having cardiovascular disease or diabetes or any of those uh, types of things really as should best be as possible but isolation. them being on absolute isolation is yeah. of very little value unless the community around them are taking the steps to flatten the curve right so so what we need there's almost a yeah. die a dichotomous response to what needs to happen we need to be or you, one can even say a triad response we need to ultra protect that 
at-risk population as best as we can, okay? recognizing that they will be the ones that, if infected, can quickly cascade into an unhealthy outcome or mortal outcome. For the individuals that are, that are conclusively infected, we need to have you know, proper isolation so that they can healthily, because you know, they're not in the at-risk, they'll go through their infection. It's just, you know, it's gonna be a few days, sometimes very little, sometimes three to five days of a flu. And we allow them to get through without you know, being properly isolated so that they're not passing it on. And of course, then the other part of the society that will never come into contact or hopefully not comes into contact. And as the viral load, Think of the space that we're in as the sum total of where that viral load can be. And what we need to do is we need to keep reducing the viral load. How do you reduce the viral load? By reducing that which is emitted. How do you reduce that which is emitted? By reducing and secluding the individuals that need to deal with their infection and let it go away so that once you're better, once you went to immune system has dealt with the virus that is in you, then once you're over the infectious phase, what happens is once you go back out, you're not spewing it, number one. And number two, even if you were exposed to it, you no longer go back into the cycle. And now we have to be a little careful here. We don't yet know the full immunity curve. We don't yet know the full immunity behavior to this virus. Okay, so we have to be careful there. Okay, and this brings up. Wow. So, so you know, all things equal for the most for the most part, when the human body, when the immune system, uh, both the what we call the humoral and the innate. So both these for for viral infections, we need both our antibody response, but we also need our innate. T cell response as well. We need we need all aspects of the human immunity. When we deal with a viral infection, for the most part, as we recover, we are immune to that virus. Such that, and here comes, such that if the same virus we were exposed to it, we are now able to deal with the virus particle comes into the body, but we're our immune system snuffs it out before it starts to re-replicate and before we become spewing engines again, right? So it's... Um, we develop um, antibodies and we, we develop... Have, we develop it's, it's not, your immune system is not just, for example, with viral infections, IgA, one of the major subgroups that are involved in viral protection, but also innate. There are your T cells. There are natural killer cells. There are cells that... Uh, bring about the inflammatory response, and here we speak of inflammation as a good thing. All right, so so we, we bring about the, the 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 alarm bell response to deal with the infection. Now, not every virus has such a clean cycle in the human body. Some viruses, the there are ripple effects. The immune system, you were able to get rid of the first wave, and you know you got better but you may not be completely immune to that virus such that if you are re-exposed to it, you do, the virus can enter your cells, can reproduce for a period of time, often shorter, often not as vigorously, before we snuff it out again. So of course, during that little period of time, again, you become a spewing engine, right? You're spewing out. So we've got to be careful about that. But there's something else we have to be careful about, and that is, one of the things that is a little bit noxious about the coronaviruses is 
they have a fairly high rate of mutation. Okay, and so so the evolution of the virus means that you may become immune to one virus, but then the second or third or fourth iteration of that virus is a beast all of all on its own and your immune system is not equipped to handle that one okay dr mentor is this like why are we being exposed to these viruses is it our bad animal husbandry um processes has this, is this always affected humankind since time mm -hmm. immemorial we just don't not aware of it mm -hmm. um or are we going um, to see it's a more very, of this happening? It's a question that I am not entirely equipped to answer. I, I know what, what I know where my strong points are, and these are people far more intelligent than me in broader topics. But here's what I can add. Here's what I can give to that question. We've always been exposed to these things. Viruses are, there are viruses that find as their original host, the animals that we either interact with through animal husbandry, through uh, food sources. We've always, as a human species, been exposed to these. But the, one of the ways that it's controlled is, well, depending on the virulence of the virus, those that are affected die off much faster. Um, our populations were not as dense. And so these things leave animal sources, get into humans, and then whittle out from the sharp curve, and then they flatten, and then we move on. And, and several factors that, as you put, does have to human population. Uh, how much more we're interacting with animals, and what is the context within which we're interacting with those animals, from game that was simply wild game, to now animals that are, anim through animal husbandry, closed, through simply because of our expanding populations. We're encroaching into areas and interacting with the with animals or the ripple effect of animals, such as one of the major transmitters uh, or carriers of the coronavirus is a bats, for example. I mean, you know, there's in very few societies do bats play a role of some active interaction with human life. You know, you know, we're not few societies. We're not eating it. We don't keep them as pets. We are not, you know, and so on and so forth. But as we do encroach upon areas, you know, we're going to start being in greater interaction with animals that we previously weren't as interacted with, or we would be interacting with offshoots, whether it be the feces of those animals, whether it be those animals infecting bats that are infecting the animals that we do live from, and so on and so forth. So there's a bit of that going on. A radically important thing here, and it's just our new world. We are a much more mobile world than we've ever been, right? That, that's that's you know we're a much yeah, more mobile world on any given day you can have someone literally on one half of the globe and within 24 hours that person is on the other half of the globe and this is not to be hysterical or hysteria causing this is just a reality of life and it is something that we have to be cognizant of does this mean that we close our borders indefinitely does this mean that we're suspicious this these viruses have no ethnic bias none whatsoever okay None whatsoever. No. This is the danger that I see too happening is um, us becoming fearful of people from other, uh, you know, from overseas or from other ethnicities and stuff. And I hope that the, the, the society is mature enough to not, you know, um, develop a, a bias Any towards human people. Any human being. It's simply this. a matter. And, it, and, it, and really, 
Are there hygiene issues that can contribute to this? Yes. But at the end of the day, hygiene or all the hygiene in the world, if you're in contact, if you, if you unfortunately, second, you know, through direct means or secondary means, are in contact with this virus, especially viruses that can transmit at such alarming rates, you will be infected. Okay? And so coming now, let's, let's take all of this and package this into something that is, as, I, as we keep saying, moderated. Of the first of the things and of the first of the statements, our, our population, our societies, we need to look beyond the fear-mongering and we need to recognize this is not in the big picture an overly deadly virus. Speaking in plain terms, just in plain terms, you know, it's kind of, <gasps> he or she had, you know, it's, 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 it's a virus. Many, many more people than think they know have this virus already or have had this virus and they've gotten over it and they didn't even know what they had. They thought they had the regular January flu. Okay. okay. So, so number one, put that into perspective. Number two, having said that, recognize that if this virus does make it to segments of the population that are at risk, it is a killer or it can be a killer. And then beyond the segments of the population for which it can have rapid, unfortunate health outcomes, there is that buffer 8 to 10% of the population that if they get this infection, it will not be a mortal infection, but it will be an infection that causes them to require hospital care. And 8 to 10% of any society needing hospital care is more than the usual machinery of our healthcare system at any given point in time. Absolutely. Usually it's about we can handle two to three percent at you know in terms of times of peril. Okay? Not ten percent. Can I ask one question? The flu vaccine, the normal flu vaccine at a time like New Zealand is going into winter. Um, and I'm debating with myself, do I take my parents to get a normal flu vaccine mm-hmm. because we don't want a double whammy, you know? That, um, it, it, will it, that won't have any effect on the coronavirus, yeah. but for a population I, I going must admit, into Lisa, winter... Uh, again, for the audience listening, this is, this is more than I am capable of answering. So what I will give now has to be coloured from the perspective that it is beyond my, my, my knowledge base. But what I would say is this, I would say, of course, the yeah. regular flu vaccine is precisely a vaccine against a strain that is not the SARS, at least not as yet, the SARS-CoV-2 strain. So the immunity that that flu vaccine will bring about or could bring about will not benefit them if they're in contact. Now, having said that, there are two more considerations. Yeah. Of course, what you don't want is what you have highlighted or what you hinted at is absolutely a person can be infected with multiple strains. A person can get infected with the regular flu, be dealing with the health consequences of the regular flu, and then get the SARS-CoV-2. And of course, the simultaneous or additive impact on the human body to the degree of additional inflammatory responses. We have what is called the, a cytokine storm response, which by the way is what is causing the real, it's one of the real killers for this particular, um, this particular uh, strain. It's the uh, cytokine storm syndrome where because of the inflammatory response, because it came about so quickly, you go from not be, you know, breathing 
to not being able to breathe, or you have a vascular event because of rapid inflammation of the vascular lining, okay? So I think what you were hinting at, and that is what I would uh, concur with, if we could at least bring down the potential risk of co-infections during this period, I might say it's a reasonable enough uh, objective that you should consider. That being said, recognize that when a person, especially some segments of the population, when you get certain vaccines, including the uh, common flu vaccine, you do go through a period of inflammation and you do get a microinflammatory response, which yeah. really then becomes a throw of the dice. You do not want elevated inflammatory responses coupled with from what we can tell, you just don't, and that's why things, you know, something is, why would type 2 diabetes be a comorbidity? Well, diabetics are dealing with an increased risk of what? Inflammatory responses. So the name of the game here is we've got to be careful about the inflammatory and acute and uncontrolled and that storm response is what we've got to be careful with. Make sense? Okay. So. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, as, a, as, a, as a final, and I know you've probably got other interviews to get to, Dr. Mansour, can you explain the, the contagiousness of the virus outside of the human body? How long does it stay on surfaces, and what uh, impact is, is this going to have on our is, shipping and on our... The, the, this is where we and others have put a, you know, some degree of... Uh, effort in, in, in looking at these things. So once the virus leaves the body, so in the body, it co-ops the cells, it multiplies, it erupts in the body, and of course it erupts in the body, but then it can leave the body via what we understand, obviously sputum is the major source, those little micro droplets that leave the body, whether it's leaving the body via blood, it's, it's a question, and whether it's leaving the body via feces, i.e. fecal contamination, is another question that let's leave that alone for the time being. So sputum, now once it leaves, we have to know that these sputum droplets are exceedingly small. And when a person is speaking, just as I'm speaking to you, if I, you know, I tend to be passionate about certain things, you know, and I've got, I've got my computer screen in front of me. If I, if I give them, you know, a one hour podcast, at the end of the podcast, when I look at my computer yeah. screen, you know, it's a little bit gross. It needs some cleaning. But it's, it, it shows how much yeah, yeah. leaves the mouth. Yeah. Okay. For the general person. So word to warning, yeah. and we'll get to this. These little things, horrible transmitters. Horrible transmitters. We'll get to that shortly. Now, so when the sputum leaves, what we're the, the, the simulation and studies that are going on, these droplets can actually survive in the air for several hours. They just they're they're like little dust particles, you know, being carried along by the waves of air. Several hours, your sputum can exist in the air. Of that period, the virus. Wow in the sputum that's been emitted, appears to be able to live in the air before it settles for about three hours. Okay. Wow, so you can just walk into someone else's cloud of, of sputum, right. they were talking there, they- And they, you are breathing, talk. and that's what we you talk about this by. containment area. Now having said that, obviously there's a big difference walking by someone in a park 
that you are walking, open air, versus someone in a building of which there's, you know, industrial airflow, versus, 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 and now you get to a closed, you know, I don't know, you know, uh, a room full of people, uh, poor ventilated, and of course, going into the winter times, are, your windows are closed, your, you know, your ventilation may not be as good as you'd otherwise want it, or a plane, you know, and the, you know, these times or, or attending, and this is why governments are correctly attending a conference that might otherwise not be a concern, but you pack 500 people into a room, you know, and the air circulation wasn't best designed for that. So, so we've got to be careful. Three hours, once in the air, the virus can exist and stay, stay uh, uh, um, animated, i.e. infectious for up to three hours. Now, once they settle, once they settle on different surfaces, they can survive for different periods of time. And it's, it's, it's a whole field of study as to why viruses exist in the air versus surfaces. Let's leave that alone. Here are some important ones. It seems to be able to survive on cardboard surfaces for up to 24 hours. Now, you might ask, why in God's green earth did someone study wow. viruses, COVID-2, on cardboard? Well, all of our food supply and all of the things that we're shipping, 24 hours, 24 hours. It seems to be able to survive on harder surfaces, uh, i.e. wooden surfaces, uh, um, 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 steel surfaces, for up to three to five days. Okay. Oh this God. is, if I were to add a fourth characteristic, when we said three that make this virus pretty naughty, the fourth would be this. It's surviving outside of the host for longer periods than other, some, some other viruses, which of course simply adds to why its row value, its contagion value, is about double some of the previous viruses we've seen because of these attributes of this particular virus. Again, that survivability doesn't mean that it's more or less deadly. No, it just means that it survives and then you can pick it up and then you'll have a mild flu, but then you are transmitting. Right? So, so we've got to understand the transmittability. This is the thing we've got to keep coming back to. And of course, the more that we can do to avoid being in those areas, the more that we can do to practice the hygiene. Um, there was an intelligent article uh, it went a little too much in one direction. And what, what the medical expert was highlighting was of, uh, uh, um, advising that people not wear masks. Okay, that's no. So we've got to understand this. Wearing a mask, not. assuming that it is a mask that has the filtration properties that can withstand three to five micrometers, because those spit, those those sputum, three to five micrometers. Not all masks can filter for that. So you've got to be, if you're going to wear a mask, make sure you're wearing one that, ma that meets the filtration characteristics associated with this, number one. Number two, what the, what the medical, what, what, the, what the expert was trying to convey is, don't think that that mask, which is, which is an important protection, certainly, by the way, if you think you, if you think you have the infection and you have no choice but to have to deal with and take care of you do wear the mask so that you're not putting those spitules out into the environment that you're in. Now, but for your own protection, on the other hand, what we're noticing is people wear masks and then they think that, okay, that's it. And then they're no longer 
aware of their touching, rubbing of the eyes, rubbing of the nose. They're constantly shifting the mask, which of course is constantly putting that. And what they're not realizing is the mask is protecting you from something of a three-hour circulation. The mask is not protecting you for the two, three, five days of the surfaces that you're in contact with. So, so it, it, it is a good don't, thing to be doing, but don't, but don't forget that whatever the, the hand washing, you know, I am so never, ever, ever, washing. ever, ever a fan of those, you know, sanitary, you know, but at this time, you know what, now you do, now you do. And, you know, there's a time and place for everything, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, Yes, there's, there, there, you know, and, 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 and right um, so let's, let's, just, let's just track now and maybe we'll close on this, Lisa. Just the average person. If you're the, you, you had to go out. You had to go out and get your groceries. Okay. Be mindful of your environment. Try, try, if possible, to not go during high traffic times. And I realize how silly that might sound. Thankfully, certain chains, certainly here in Canada, they're actually establishing hours for the elderly. So they're actually parceling out the hours of open store to account so that they can valve and keep the environment in the store as healthy as possible. Okay. When you go into That's such it. environments, right. be mindful of your environment. It's, it's not to be schizophrenic, but be mindful. You know, on, a, on an average day, you were pushing your cart. Maybe you were eating while you're pushing your cart or drinking your coffee, rubbing your... This is not an average day. So, so, you know, don't be drinking your coffee and have an open-lidded something as you're going about your daily affairs right now. That's, that's, that's not for now, okay? So avoid those things. Be purposeful. You want to go shop? You say, I'm going, you know what you need, you know where it is, you get in, you get out. You try to touch as few surfaces as possible. It doesn't mean that you can't be pleasant. You're not shaking hands. You're, you know... Hi, Mrs. Jones, nice to see you. And you get about your business. And everyone just knows that we're here to protect each other. Okay. When you come home, make it a habit. We don't quite know. It seems that the fabric, the, the porous fabrics, you know, cotton jacket or whatever have you, they seem to be a shorter half-life for the virus, but, but not zero, shorter. Okay. So you come in, dedicate a closet, uh, you know, whether it's in the garage or whether it's at the, you know, at the entry of the home, where you come in and you take your outer garment and you hang it up there, for example, okay? And that you don't enter into the rest of the home, you know, with your outer garment and so on. So take your, take, take your jacket out, hang it up on that closet, wow. nothing else in there. The next time that you're going to use it, all things equal, it seems that the virus isn't going to survive that long. Get yourself to a washroom, wash your hands. Uh, ideally, you know, just you will know to what extent you've been exposed to the environment. And ideally, ideally, again, not trying to increase wastage here and water load. Ideally, to the extent that you are out there, to the extent of what environment that you are out there, you maybe take your clothes and you put it into the washer. Right? But, 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 you know, if you knew you were in and out, you had an outer garment, that's the only thing you need to hang up. That should be perfectly fine. What is the end point of this? The end point of this is we do not need to be hysterical. We do need to be more purposeful. We do need to be more aware of our environment. You're just aware. The things that we wouldn't have thought of, walking around with an open-lidded coffee as we're shopping or, you know, whatever it might be, not now. 
not now. Okay. You know, eat, you know, and, and so just be, you know, these things may seem as, oh my gosh, but life can go on doing these things, right? So, so in other words, taking these steps do not mean that we stop living. We're just going to be a bit more careful. Okay. We're a bit more mindful. Um, I'm sure by now it goes without saying gyms and recreational facilities are not the place that you're going to be in this period. And that is not to put an onerous, uh, um, you know, to, to, to stifle these businesses. It's to say that, look, when you go to an enclosed environment, what are you doing more of when you're exercising? <gasps> you, you're, 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 you're emitting a lot more spitules and, you know, and there's only so much that, we can do to keep surfaces clean so just for this period of time. And this is where you come in, Lisa, and people like you helping individuals know what can you do at home? You know, what can you do to, to, to still maintain some activity? Uh, you can control your surfaces a little bit more than, you know, in a commercial setting. These are the practical things I underline, I underline. Do not make this something that it's not. It's not something that is a killer virus for the vast majority of individuals, it is for a small segment, we need to protect. Yes, we need to protect. It's about, Indeed. It's about protecting the vulnerable. That's a, a non-narcissistic approach that we have to have, is it's all about the people mm -hmm. who are vulnerable and not so much about ourselves. Um, and the economic pressures are definitely there, um, but we need, to, we need to prioritize health over economy right now. We can survive economic downturns they won't be nice it won't be pretty but we can survive them can you tell me in in china yes. the, the epicenter of where this yes. started yes. because they're, they're weeks ahead of us most certainly most certainly most certainly there is an absolute positive again the positivity and we, we, we diverged, we didn't get too much into the more basal health things like reducing one's stress, trying as best as possible to eat healthily and so forth. Because what I'm trying to say here is another part of this is that we need to be positive. We're, we're not part of the benefit of the global connected community is that we're not in silos with an unknown of what's going on. We can see the examples, both the good of them and the bad of them, okay? And even from the bad of them, we can see what this curve looks like. Um, in Wuhan, in China, you know, where the epicenter appears to have started from, with, mind you, some fairly draconian steps, mind you, okay? They have been able to dramatically uh, flatten that curve dramatically, okay. And all th all things equal, it was you know by the time they were really in gear, it's been about a month and a half, okay. So in a highly populated area, at the epicenter of the virus, but with pretty you know severe or strong uh, steps, strong the. Plateau has, the, 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 the peak has been plateaued. We've, as we call it, we've flattened that viral spread rate. Okay, so, so we know, and this is, this is about his worst yeah. case scenario. Unfortunately, several other high populous countries did not take the warning um, uh, the way it should have been taken, have not taken steps, and then the steps they're taking seem to be sort of two steps behind, and then each day they're, they're catching up. And so what that means, it doesn't mean that it's a wool. It just means that what they've done is they have 
pushed the ability to flatten that curve. They pushed it out. So we're now not only looking at a peak, we're looking at a broader period of time to bring this to heal, to bring this to heal. Wow. So China has actually done pretty well and places like Italy and Iran uh, are really still well, in the, in the uh, Certain in the places storm. in Northern Italy have also done, through some fairly draconian measures, a brilliant job of bringing it to halt, by the way. But what they're dealing with is they're dealing with the ripple, the ripple effect in Italy. What really crippled Ripley, Italy was the ripple effect of all of the pressure on the healthcare system it broke the system. And then, so what is happening in Italy and what happened in Italy was you broke the system. So this is no longer just about the virus. This is about every other doctors are now, you know, just literally at wit's end, you know, physiologically, they can't even stand nurses. You know, if we want to see heroes, Lisa, look at these medical professionals, look at these young women, these nurses, these doctors, those are your true heroes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We must be totally grateful to our first responders, our doctors, our nurses, the people who are putting themselves Indeed. on the line while Indeed. we can go into isolation. They can't. Um, and we need to be Indeed. very, so I guess very the, grateful to them and what they're doing. Dr. Mansour, I think you know, we've, we've covered no, I was, a lot I was just of ground going to, to complete the clarity the, the, the last question you've asked. So I said, if we find ourselves in a society and within the governmental framework that are taking the proper steps and that we contribute to that by playing the part in the current, we could see ourselves walking out of this worst case scenarios. No, 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 I have to be very careful. Remember, I'm saying if we do everything that we should do, and if that is happening at a societal level, and if that is happening with the government taking the due precautions, we can see this being something that two months from now we, you know, we come out on the other end as we have had data from Wuhan, from Singapore, from Taiwan. If we don't do those things, we get into that bit of a woe-ish fortune, you know, in terms of the, the, the folks that are painting pictures that we don't want to see that could be real. But I would urge your community, I would urge the audience to be positive. Not, I'm not trying to sugarcoat anything here. I don't sugarcoat anything that we, we will and can get through this. The sooner we adopt the measures is the sooner we flatten that curve, create enough immunity and the health to return society to where it be, to get over the, the financial hump. The longer we spread this, is the greater yes. opportunity we cripple our medical system and of course all of the ripple effects. So it starts with the individual, Lisa. It starts uh, with, with that individual through that the influence are. they have in their families, yep. educating their children, their spouses, their, you know. And if we do that, we can build the societies that will get over this as we've gotten over as a human race many other challenges in the past. We are very, very lucky that we have people like you and educated people who can tell us what is to expect. People yeah. in past generations did not have that knowledge. So we, we've got a, we got a chance to make the best of this very bad situation and to turn it around into new positive directions as a society and to take personal care and to really take this seriously. 
not being, and I have to admit, even a week ago myself, I was not aware of the acuteness of the situation because we're a little bit removed in New Zealand and we haven't been hit too bad. Mm -hmm. We've got 20 cases or so as of yesterday um, mm -hmm. and we've been a bit blasé, you know, and now we're not being blasé and, and it's more information and, and you know, uh, your colleagues that are getting this information out to us is absolutely crucial and will save lives. It's that been an honor, it's a mind. pleasure. Lisa, you know? what you do, the passion, the care, the concern comes across from halfway across the world. Keep doing what you're doing. I wish you absolute best to you, your family, your elder mom, that book that was written, the love that is there. And so, yeah. of course, you know what's going to come out of this, Lisa? That one of the most beautiful things is we are going to have no choice but to bring back that sense of community, caring, the empathy, and some of that me-me narcissism, one way or the other, it's going to get squashed, one way or the other. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, wealth and material things mean nothing at the end of the day if you're not well and if you're not looking after your loved ones. Um, and, and, a, and, a, and a change of priorities can Indeed. do us all good, I think. In, in that respect, you know. So thank you, Dr. Mansour. I really am sending you a big non-coronavirus likewise <laughs> to Canada. <laughs> a virtual one, say. Um, uh, you and your company, the DNA Company, if anyone wants to find out um, more about Dr. Mansour's work, you can go to the dnacompany.com. Dr. Mansour is one of the leading, well, world's leading functional genomic specialists, and as you've heard today, also immunologist. And he's, you know, sacrificed a lot to be here and is doing back-to-back -back interviews, as I can imagine. So thank you very much for your time. Absolute and honor and pleasure. And, and one day I still do hope, sooner rather than later, to be able to come visit you guys when it's safe to do, when it's safe to do so. <laughs> We're definitely still working. We're definitely still working on that plan, Doctor Mansour. Yeah. It's just going to be a maybe a little to bit everyone later, down there. depending on how we go. <laughs> if your brain is not functioning at its best, then check out what the team at VLight.com do. Now, VLight produces photobiomodulation devices. Now, your brain function depends largely on the health of the energy sources of the brain cells. In other words, the mitochondria. And research has shown that stimulating your brain with near-infrared light revitalizes mitochondria. I use these devices daily for both my own optimal brain function and also for other age-related decline issues. And also for my mum's brain rehabilitation after her aneurysm and stroke. So check out what the team do at vilight.com. That's V-I-E-L-I-G-H-T.com. And use the code TAMATI at checkout to get 10% off any of their devices. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends. And head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatamati.com.